It's Thursday, March 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Big death penalty news yesterday as California Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order granting temporary reprieves to all 737 inmates on California's death row, which is the largest in the nation. The order will also close the execution chamber at San Quentin State Prison. Bill Willon, reporter for the LA Times, joins us to discuss the governor's decision to shut down the death penalty regardless of the voters' decision to keep it. Next, another really bad day for Paul Manafort. After being sentenced in Virginia last week to just under four years in prison for bank and tax fraud, a judge in D.C. slapped another three and a half years on him, bringing his total to just about seven and a half years. Daniel Lippman, reporter for Politico, joins us for all the details on his sentencing, including new charges coming out of New York, where if he is convicted, the president would not be able to pardon him there. Finally, it could be the newest foodie trend, road to table. Right now, over 20 states allow roadkill salvage, and California might be the next state to let people take the meat from the roadkill they see on the road. Eleanor Cummins, assistant editor at Popular Science, joins us for this and also concerns about that pesky zombie deer disease. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Three out of four nations in the world know better and are doing better. They've abolished the death penalty. It's time California join those ranks. I believe the death penalty is wrong. Joining us now is Phil Willon, reporter for the LA Times based in Sacramento. California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed an executive order to impose a moratorium on the death penalty in the state. He called it ineffective, irreversible, and immoral. He is giving reprieves to 737 condemned inmates. They're not going to be released or anything. There's no uh, change in their sentences but he is effectively stopping the death penalty and even closing the execution chamber at San Quentin State Prison. What do we know about his reasoning, why this all came up, and how it all played out? Well, Newsom says he has the moral authority to do this, and as well as the legal authority to do this. He's been a longtime opponent to the death penalty for decades. He endorsed measures to abolish the death penalty twice in the past six years. And what brought this to a head, he said, was the fact that the state's new lethal injection protocol, basically the cocktail that will be used to put people to death, is still being devised, and he has to approve it within the next month or so, or at least sign off on it. And he said that that prospect kind of brought this issue, made it a real, very real issue to him and a more immediate issue. He didn't think that he would have to act as soon as he did, he says. But since this was coming up, he decided something had to be done. And that was intensified by the fact that there are 25 people on death row now who have exhausted all of their appeals and who would be first in line for the death chamber. What is uh, going on with the lethal injection protocol? Is it an issue of what drugs we're using? Because I know a lot of states are going through that problem. They can't find the right mix. There's drug makers that are objecting to the use of their drugs into these lethal injection protocols. Is that the same with our state? It is and it isn't. I mean, there was a legal challenge to the lethal injection method, which had the, the previous one, which had three different drugs. The Department of Corrections has since changed that under the direction of the courts to one drug. I guess they have an option of one or two drugs. But they basically cleared, at least from the court's point of view, constitutional muster to proceed. And so Newsom himself told me that he expected the legal challenge to lethal injection 
to be resolved during his term in office. It may not have been this month or this year or even this four-year term, but he expected it to be resolved while he was governor. Other people I've talked to as well, including death penalty proponents and opponents, agreed with that. So this was something that was definitely going to land on his desk. Uh, we, we, the California, in essence, has had a moratorium since 2006 when its method of execution was tossed out by the courts and has kind of been locked in this legal battle ever since. But that eventually was going to be resolved, and it looked like that was going to happen in, in the years in the ahead. More people have died on death row by natural causes or suicide than have been put to death by the state. You mentioned that uh, the California voters weighed in two times in the last six years on statewide ballot measures to repeal the death penalty, and they said, we don't want to get rid of it. They even voted in favor of fast-tracking the appeals process. What has Gavin Newsom said with regards to that? By this press conference, when he announced his executive order, he got really peppered by reporters about that. I mean, how could you defy the will of the people of California? He said that the California voters knew what they were getting when they elected him, and he was elected overwhelmingly in November, and that he's been a longtime opponent of the death penalty. We'll see if people believe that. I know a lot of Republicans especially have been criticizing him, as well as the groups that favor the death penalty in the state and put the ballot measure on to accelerate appeals process in capital cases. But he said that he has a constitutional authority to do this, which he does, to grant reprieves. One interesting thing to note about that, however, is reprieves are temporary. So when Newsom leaves office, the reprieve expires. So that could be, you know, four years, that could be eight years from now. But when he leaves office, the next governor will have to decide this all over again. And is it something where the next governor would have to go through the whole process and sign another executive order? I mean, it just effectively canceled when he's out? Yes. Yeah, that would happen. I mean, in the, a lot can happen in the meantime. There could be a member of the Assembly is proposing a new constitutional amendment to abolish the death penalty, which could be on the ballot in 2020. Newsom has the ability to commute sentences, although that's, that's a limited ability. Anyone who on death row who's been convicted of two or more felonies, if he commutes their sentence to, so let's say, life in prison, that has to be signed off by the California Supreme Court, which in recent months has seemed reluctant to do so, especially when Newsom's predecessor, Governor Brown, issued some commutations in December. You mentioned a lot of the backlash that Gavin Newsom is receiving so far. Michelle Hannessy, president of the Association of Deputy District Attorneys, is opposed to this. A lot of lawmakers, on the other hand, in the California legislature have been supportive of him. The president weighed in. He said that he is not happy with this, that the friends and families of the forgotten victims are not thrilled with this, and neither is he. It seems along party lines, kind of. The two ballot measures over the past six years that would have abolished the death penalty both lost. And that, that means, in reality, some Democrats and moderates voted against abolishing the death penalty. So it's not just a Republican issue versus a Democratic issue. You have different divides on the issue geographically. Law enforcement, of course, is many law enforcement groups were in favor of the death penalty and, and campaigned for it. But So it's, it's not as simple as this black and white and red versus blue. In the meantime, Newsom joins other governors like in uh, Oregon, Colorado, Pennsylvania, We've done the same thing, moratoriums on the executions, but the debate constantly swirls. And I know that the lethal injection protocol is always a big thing. It's the cocktail of drugs that we're using. That's what you know stops countless executions throughout the country right now. Phil Willon, reporter for the LA Times based in Sacramento. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Judge Jackson conceded that there was absolutely no evidence of any Russian collusion in this case. So that makes two courts. Two courts have ruled 
no evidence of any collusion with the Russians. Joining us now is Daniel Littman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. It was another really bad day for Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chairman. He had already been previously charged with uh, just under four years in charges brought up by the Mueller probe. This was the second part of it. He got an additional three and a half years. And then after that, moments after he got charged, New York filed charges against him in almost a slap in the face, you know, because there's tons of speculation whether the president would pardon Paul Manafort. But since these are state charges, he would not be able to get pardoned there. Let's start off with what happened yesterday. The judge, Amy Berman Jackson, was very forceful in what she said. She said at one time that he bought more houses than one man can enjoy, more suits than one man can wear, basically hitting back at the lavish lifestyle that he lived because of all the fraud that he went through. So what do we know about what happened? Manafort was kind of hit double across the bow with those New York mortgage fraud and other state felony charges, plus the additional three and a half years in jail based on criminal conspiracy, those two counts which Judge Jackson gave. And that relates to some of the money laundering, not registering for foreign lobbying. Those are crimes because it's important for America to know just who is lobbying based on, you know, on behalf of foreign countries, which may not be our friends. And so that also includes obstruction of justice. And Manafort could have gotten a better prison arrangement, but he chose to violate his cooperation deal he had with federal prosecutors, and that made it much harder for the judge to give a more lenient sentence. I mean, he was playing against himself the whole time. He lied to his accountants, his banks, his own lawyers. He lied to the special counsel. He had possibly was going to get some type of deal there. But then the special counsel said, hey, well, he was actually lying to us again. So that kind of nullified any possible leniency he could have had there. For her part, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, how did she play the whole thing? Because uh, Paul Manafort went into court in a wheelchair. Uh, he was uh, saying, I'm, you know, I'm old, I'm tired, I've lost everything. He had complications of gout. That's why he's in the wheelchair. But the Judge Jackson had none of that. Yeah, the judge didn't show much leniency or understanding based on that because maybe he's kind of a cripple now, but he was a pretty robust and vigorous man when he was making those tens of millions of dollars from foreign lobbying and a kind of associated money laundering crimes. He really lived large. He flew to Ukraine a bunch of times for his client, and it kind of makes it hard for him to, unless he's going to get a pardon, doesn't, it looks like he's going to spend most of the rest of his life in jail. And that's not what he had signed up for when he worked on the Trump campaign. He This was his ticket back to paying some of those debts he owed a Russian oligarch, but also reestablishing himself in the community in Washington to try to help his business and remind people of just who he was. He was a guy who worked at a top lobbying firm with Roger Stone, Rick Davis back in the 1980s in D.C. They kind of invented the form of lobbying we see today. And because of all the attention that was paid by the media and by others to what happened with his foreign lobbying, especially with that pro-Russian Ukrainian leader, made it much easier for federal investigators and then the Mueller probe to find his crimes. Let's talk about that possible pardon from the president. I know Sarah Huckabee Sanders has said that the president's going to decide on that when he's ready, but the president has not necessarily said he's going to do it, but in the past he's called uh, Paul Manafort a brave man, a good man, and he's just kind of caught up in this whole thing. And he's talked about how he does have the power to pardon anybody he wants. The judge did say that throughout this legal process that any questions of collusion during the campaign was not resolved one way or another by this case. So that's got to be something that the president really enjoys. Totally. Manafort was the guy that basically helped him win 
the nomination at the convention because Manafort is a very good vote counter of delegates. And there was always these worries about whether Republicans were going to try to find someone to dislodge Trump at the top of the ticket. And he stopped that in the tracks. And he was very proud of that. And he kind of feels like he is owed something by the president. But unclear if Trump is going to spend his capital on a pardon for Manafort, given that it doesn't really seem to help Trump. It would just lead to torrents of bad press coverage. And Trump might be trying to hold off on any pardons in case Jared Kushner or Donald Trump Jr., if they have charges that they would face, then he would want to use it for them, not waste his political capital on this pardon for someone who he hasn't talked to in a while. Right. And and even though they really have nothing to do with all the collusion stuff, these were real crimes that were committed. The guy was lying and committed all sorts of fraud all over the place. So he got to pay for those crimes at minimum. These charges in New York, are some of these charges the same things that have popped up already? Are they all new, separate charges? I got to imagine that some of these crimes are, are part of the same group of things he's already done. We're talking about mortgage fraud, which I mentioned, and some of the other charges that Manafort faces in New York include conspiracy, falsifying business records, and he could face up to 25 years in New York State Prison if convicted of the most serious charges in the new indictment. And he's already 69 years old. He faces seven and a half years in jail from the federal charges, so that leads him to 77 or so. And if he's going to go to jail in New York, he wouldn't go for 25 years, but any additional five, six, seven years, that brings him to the end of his life. And so while he seemed to have lived a pretty good life, lots of fun for the first 68 years of his life, it seems like all of his trouble has caught up with him. Daniel Lippman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. In California, motor vehicles strike and kill approximately 20,000 deer each year. And instead, they're saying, well, why don't we just let people have, you know, what is ostensibly free range organic food and have them be the ones to clear them from the roadway and then profit, you know, in some way by having a a free meal. Joining us now is Eleanor Cummins, assistant editor at Popular Science. It might be a new trend sweeping a few states. Uh, Some are saying it's freeway to table, road to table, kill it and grill it. But a lot more states are wanting you to eat roadkill. It's a problem that happens all over the place where animals wander into the streets. They come in contact with cars. It's largely been a problem for the states and the local cities there to discard the carcasses of these animals that have been killed. But now more states are letting people actually go and process the meat themselves and take it home. So what do we know about this? I think one thing that's really incredible is to think about just the sheer numbers here. So in California, motor vehicles strike and kill approximately 20,000 deer each year. And so as you were saying, that's been like on, you know, the roads departments to be the ones to send crews out there, collect them, move them out of the way so they're not going to hurt other people driving down the road. And instead they're saying, well, why don't we just let people have, you know, what is ostensibly free range organic food and have them be the ones to clear them from the roadway and then profit, you know, in some way by having a, a free meal. Now, I know roadkill has a bad reputation. You think of small rodents usually becoming roadkill. But as you said, the numbers are pretty crazy. Over 20 states allow people to salvage roadkill. 
So there's a new bill in California that's proposing the same thing. But where it's been happening already, a lot of people do enjoy this option. Definitely. West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Washington and Oregon, Alaska, a lot of those states where people are still really into hunting and have a sort of familiarity with this. I think that, you know, this is kind of a specialty skill, right? Like most people right. can't just effectively pick an elk off the side of the road and turn that into a meal. But if you train yourself, if you kind of know what you're looking for and you have the tools, like you're going to have to, you know, cut through some bones, you can access this incredible supply of meat that was previously just being sent to a landfill. And so it's something that's kind of become really popular. What I think is also interesting is that I think there's maybe kind of an ick factor for people where they think that that <laughs> right. scraping something off the, the side of the road is really upsetting. But the reason that a lot of these laws actually went into place was just trying to stop people from poaching animals. So it, it wasn't even like trying to protect people necessarily from anything. It was just trying to protect the animals. I mean, you said it, this is a skill set that a lot of people don't really have. I know in the article, you guys profiled a couple people in Idaho, you know, as a young couple that saw deer hit by a semi truck and they said it was still super fresh, but they had those skills <laughs> that they can go and process the animal there. They took like three legs and they left the fourth because that was the one where the impact happened. But not a lot of people are going to be able to do something like this. And then there's that whole question of, let's say there's an amateur who wants to do this. This is, this is the point that I'm getting to. A lot of times you don't know when the rot starts setting in on one of these animals. I've read that it can... Anywhere from two to three hours, rock can start to set in, depending on the weather and conditions that are out there, how sunny it is. So uh, it could be tough for somebody say, seeing an animal on the road. Hey, I want to do this, but might not be such a good idea for them. Like, as you said, there is this couple in um, Idaho who, it, you know, it's totally legal for them to be doing this. And what they said was that the winter time was, you know, the time in which they most enjoyed doing this because it preserved the bodies kind of like an outdoor freezer, which totally makes sense. I definitely think that, yeah, it's not uh, amateur hour out here, right? People who are doing this are, are, are really passionate about it, but it's definitely skills that anyone could acquire. And there's something that, you know, uh, ostensibly a, a lot of people used to be able to do. And it's just kind of dwindled as this has become taboo and potentially as states like California consider it, that could be moving in the opposite direction. And so how does this work? Because you can't just pick up the animal, take it home and all that. You have to still report it to the authorities. Different states have set up different systems. In Idaho, you have to report it within 24 hours to the state. And what they're looking for is just really kind of like basic information in terms of like the species of what you picked up, its sex, the location where you found it. But what they're potentially working to do in other states like Oregon is to be able to turn this into data for local officials, which is really exciting. The idea that, you know, we'd all kind of be participating in the citizen science operation where you could be tracking animals for disease and you could also be tracking animals for places where, you know, maybe the roads department could intervene and, and actually stop them from becoming roadkill by building, you know, alternative infrastructure that keeps these elk or, or deer out of harm's way. One of the diseases that officials are particularly interested in tracking is this new zombie deer disease. It's also called chronic wasting disease. In the last 15 years, it's jumped from just about two states where these things were happening to right now, 24 states. There's been reports where various different animals have this. Tell us a little bit about that. Chronic wasting diseases is really horrible. It's as bad as it sounds. It's a prion disease. So it's something that goes wrong in the brains of these animals, similar to mad cow, which is another prion disease that um, people are probably 
more familiar with. And as you were saying, it's been spreading throughout the United States. And so it's really a priority for fish and wildlife departments to be tracking it. There is some concern that it could potentially jump to humans. There is no evidence of that having happened yet, but it's something that departments are extremely conscious about countrywide. Yeah, and it happened with Matt Cow. Eleanor Cummins, assistant editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez. This was your Daily Dive.